0: Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with heavy fighting in Ukraine after Vladimir Putin launched a war of choice and conquest against a sovereign nation in the heart of Eastern Europe. Overnight, Russia's autocratic leader ordered a full-scale invasion of their small-D democratic neighbor, a premeditated and unprovoked attack that unfolded across multiple fronts, from land, air, and sea. With his country under siege, Ukrainian President Zelensky today invoked the language of the Cold War, declaring that a new Iron Curtain has closed Russia off from the civilized world, as the West reacted with horror, if not surprise. President Biden this afternoon vowed that Russia will bear the consequences of their war, announcing a second wave of what he called profound new sanctions. He categorically rejected Putin's absurd justification for what is really a flagrant land grab in clear violation of international law.
1: This was never about a genuine security concerns on their part. It was always about naked aggression, about Putin's desire for empire by any means necessary by bullying Russia's neighbors through coercion and corruption, by changing borders by force, and ultimately by choosing a war without a cause. Putin's actions betray his sinister vision for the future of our world, one where nations take what they want by force. But it is a vision that the United States and freedom-loving nations everywhere will oppose with every tool of our considerable power.
0: The new U.S. sanctions will prohibit financial transactions with more Russian banks, restrict technology exports to Russia, and target wealthy Russian oligarchs. And they come as other Western countries level their own. Additionally, the United States expelled Russia's second-highest-ranking diplomat and is bolstering troop levels in NATO countries across Eastern Europe. Vladimir Putin announced the attack just before dawn, Ukraine time, in a belligerent and possibly pre-recorded speech in which he literally tried to rewrite history to suit his deranged ambitions, thumbing his nose at the international community. He declared war at the very moment the U.N. Security Council was holding an emergency meeting intended to ward off further conflict. Most chilling, however, Putin pointedly reminded the world that Russia is a nuclear power, threatening that if any country tries to intervene, they'll face, quote, consequences that you have never experienced in your history. The Russian offensive began during Putin's speech, starting with missile strikes in and around major Ukrainian cities, one of which reportedly sounded their air sirens for the first time since World War II. The Pentagon estimated that by the evening, Russia had launched more than 160 missiles. Russian troops attacked Ukrainian border units and military installations with artillery while their air forces struck at airports and other targets, seeking to effectively neutralize Ukraine's resistance. Panicked Ukrainians encountered standstill traffic as they tried to flee, as well as long lines at gas stations, grocery stores and ATMs. Residents took shelter in their homes, basements and subway stations as apartment buildings and residential neighborhoods sustained Russian shelling. President Zelensky declared martial law and called on all citizens to take up arms, saying the government would issue weapons to anyone who wanted them. By noon Ukraine time, the country's foreign minister was reporting a full-scale attack from multiple directions. And by 1 p.m., Russian forces had reportedly broken through a defensive perimeter around the capital of Kiev. Russian forces also captured Chernobyl, the site of the 1986 nuclear meltdown, which remains radioactive to this day. Needless to say, the firefight there raised the very dangerous prospect that radioactive fallout could be unleashed. Across the continent, according to the Associated Press, a Ukrainian official said Russian shelling hit a radioactive waste repository and an increase in radiation levels was reported. President Zelensky says that 137 Ukrainian soldiers were killed and 316 injured today. All of this raises ominous questions about Putin's endgame and what he might do, what he might try to do next. It was something President Biden addressed today.
1: He has much larger ambitions in Ukraine. He wants to, in fact, reestablish the former Soviet Union. That's what this is about. How concerned are you that uh, Putin wants to go beyond Ukraine into other countries and the U.S. will have to get involved if he moves into NATO countries? Well, if he did move into NATO countries, he will be involved. We will be involved. The only thing that I'm convinced of is if we don't stop now, he'll be emboldened. If we don't move against him now with these significant sanctions, he will be emboldened.
0: Joining me now live from Kyiv is NBC News correspondent Aaron McLaughlin, former CIA director John Brennan, who's an MSNBC senior national security and intelligence analyst, and Ann Applebaum, staff writer at The Atlantic. Um, let's start with you, Aaron. Give us a sense of how it feels in Kyiv tonight, um, the level of panic. What do, you, what, what do you see and what is happening around you?
2: Hey, Joy, well, we just heard from the Ukrainian president Volodymyr Zelensky say that he is in the Capitol tonight saying he's not going anywhere, calling on people to adhere to the to the curfew, which lasts until about seven in the morning right now. It's pretty it's pretty quiet. Not a single person uh, can be seen on the street. Uh, There is a calm here in the city after what was a chaotic day full of the sounds of explosions that could be heard well into the overnight hours as missiles were targeting uh, military installations, hitting a number of military targets, as well as airfields. As thousands tried to evacuate the city, they were stuck in traffic jams. Uh, Gas stations were running out of gas. There were long lines at ATMs, many people choosing to stay in place, including a local MP that I met outside of a national police headquarters. He was there. They were handing out weapons. They've been encouraging people to take up arms to fight and defend their country. Uh, He was there. Collecting two AK-47s, he told me he'd never shot a gun in his life before, uh, but was there because he felt it was necessary. He felt like he needed it uh, to be able to protect himself and his wife, who were hunkering down in the suburbs. This is the story of so many here in Kyiv tonight, and there is real concern uh, that the Russian forces that have crossed over the border from Belarus into Ukraine are closing closer and closer into the city. Joy.
0: Thank you so much, Aaron. Let me let me let me bring in you and John Brennan. Um, but I want to first play. This is Lester Holt's interview with uh, our Secretary of State, Antony Blinken. Uh, let's play a little bit of that.
3: What action do you expect as a result of these sanctions? Uh,
4: ultimately, uh, the aggression needs to stop, uh, and President Putin needs to needs to pull back. But this is likely to take a long time. There's an immediate
3: impact of these sanctions and the other measures that we've taken. If Russia begins to feel cornered and maybe even desperate in all this, do you worry they could become more dangerous and perhaps directly threaten NATO countries? Well, first, Lester, when it comes to uh, threatening NATO countries, uh, we have
4: something very powerful called Article 5. An attack on one is an attack on all.
0: John Brennan, what I've been thinking about as just watching the coverage over the course of today is that the question increasingly, at least in my mind, is whether this man is rational. You know, what, what Vladimir Putin is doing now feels so irrational and such a threat to not only the economy of his own country, the lives of Ukrainians, many of whom have, you know, blood relatives in Russia Um And you've seen the demonstrations today. It doesn't look like this is a country that's united in this effort to take over this country and attempt regime change or whatever he's doing. And I'm wondering, as you watch what he is doing, how you assess and how would you assess if you were still in the agency, the rationality of this man and how we can anticipate what he might do and how far he might go?
4: Well, from our perspective, Joy, it certainly looks to be very irrational, uh, given the costs that he is likely to incur, as well as the Ukrainian people. But as Putin looks at the world, and especially the region, through his own personal prism, I think he sees it as a necessity from the standpoint of the Putin doctrine, which I think he wants to fundamentally alter the geostrategic balance between the East and the West. And Ukraine is the aggressive implementation of that doctrine. And so, therefore, I think he sees this as something that he has been planning to do, not just over the past several weeks or months, but also over the past number of years as he's built up Russia's military military capabilities. And so I think he sees there's this imbalance between Russia and the West, which he is now trying to address. And uh, I think a lot of us were hoping that he was not going to go into uh, Ukraine with this multi-pronged offensive, which I think is going to, he's going to incur some significant military costs. The economic and financial costs are going to take some time. And I think I agree with President Biden, that will take some time for them to feel the pinch of that. Although the ruble has been toppling today, but the military costs inside of Russia, inside of Ukraine, uh, I do think are going to be high. And I I believe that uh, Putin uh, thinks that there's going to be broader acquiescence in Ukraine to Russia's military intervention. And I think that's one of the reasons why he decided not to go forward with a very massive cyber attack today as a way not to totally alienate the Ukrainian people. But again, I think this is a miscalculation on his part. I think there's going to be stiff resistance. And I do think that the West and NATO is going to stay very united in opposition to his
5: move.
0: Yeah, you know, and reading through his speech, whether it was recorded, you know, last night or or before, a lot of it was based on just heavy doses of grievance and anger, but also a sense that in his mind, at least from what he was saying, he believes that any government that is not essentially a puppet government, he wants to restore the puppet government so that he can force Ukraine to stay in his influence. It doesn't seem that that is rational, because it seems pretty clear that all the reporting shows that Ukrainians are either fleeing or hunkering down to fight. They're willing to fight him. So I wonder how you assess what you're seeing from Russia, from what he's doing and where you think this might go.
6: So I think his his misunderstanding is even deeper than that. Um, in that very strange and twisted speech that he made on Monday, um, he essentially said there is no such thing as Ukraine. He had a very weird historical theory about how it didn't exist until the twentieth century, which bears no relationship to reality or history. Um, and he said essentially that the only country in the post Soviet space that has the right to sovereignty is Russia, and Ukraine has no right to exist, and that implies that Ukrainians have no right to exist. Um, And I think, of course, the the source of the the violence and the brutality that you're going to see over the next few days is that, you know, he thinks he's fighting a non-existent place. You know, people who aren't really human, they're not really citizens, they don't really deserve to be there. um, And that's you know, and that's why you're going to see so much violence and destruction. Um, but of course, Ukraine is a real place. It has a real history. It goes back quite far. Um, they have a long tradition of fighting empires. That's actually where the, how the national identity originally coalesced, you know, three or 400 years ago. Um, their national heroes are all partisans and rebels. Um, and they will fight and they are fighting. They did fight today. Um, of course, they're outnumbered and they're, um, they're, they're outnumbered. Out. You know, they don't have the same kind of weapons that the Russians have, but I wouldn't count them out. And I would remember always when you're looking at this and watching it um, to remember that they're a player in this, too. You know, people tend to talk about, you know, Biden and Putin and the United States and Russia, but the Ukrainians are going to play a really important role in shaping how this conflict comes out. Yeah, indeed. And, and, and it seems that they
0: are steadfast and willing to fight for their country. Let me very, very quickly, I don't know if I have time, but the, the, the ambassador, uh, the Ukrainian ambassador, I'm going to pronounce his name wrong, Kislysiato. Here he is.
4: Call Putin, call Lavrov to stop aggression. And I welcome the decision of some members of this council to meet as soon as possible to consider the necessary decision that would condemn the aggression that you launch on my people. There is no purgatory for war criminals. They go straight to hell, Ambassador.
0: John Brennan, there is also no place in the global community of nations for somebody who is isolating themselves in the way that Putin seems to be determined to do, if he and China are deciding they're going to sort of form some sort of axis and this is what they're doing, it feels like the consequences are going to be dire, not just for Ukraine, but for Russians, many of whom are related to people in Ukraine. Um, I wonder if you What do you make of Europe's ability to stand steadfast in this? How long do they hold out? How bad could this get, not only for the Russians and Ukrainians, but for Europe if this drags on and on?
5: Well, first
4: of all, I agree with Anne that Ukrainian nationalism runs strong and very deep. And we're going to see resistance continue. Um, and it's going to, I think, embolden um, the opposition uh, to uh, this intervention uh, inside of Ukraine, as well as in Europe. I just returned from London just an hour ago. And when I was there the past several days, this, all they could talk about was Russia, Russia, Ukraine. And they were hoping that Russia was not going to go with a full bore uh, intervention in Ukraine. Those hopes were dashed. And so now I think reality is setting in. And so I think there is strong consensus within NATO. They're very concerned that this is just the first stage of Russian aggression, that he could move against others. And that's why I think they are welcoming U.S. support on the military front. But also, I think that they are going to stay strong on the financial economic sanctions front. And if this war continues, I think they're going to to agree with the United States that even more significant sanctions need to be implemented, possibly against Putin himself, but also against uh, Russian involvement in the SWIFT system.
0: Yeah, we're going to get more into that throughout the show because that's that's considered the nuclear option, but he might bring that upon himself. Aaron McLaughlin, uh, John Brennan, and Applebaum, thank you very much. Up next on the readout, Putin's unhinged and ridiculous claim that he is trying to denazify Ukraine, which in fact has a Jewish president, Volodymyr Zelensky, who has a pretty incredible life story. Also, after 9-11, most Americans briefly put aside their political differences. Not this time. During this international crisis, Republicans are ramping up their vulgar attacks on the American president while genuflecting toward the dictator of Russia. No matter how bad that makes America look to the world. Plus, Putin pretends that he's not worried about sanctions, but his rich oligarch pals probably are worried and Putin's going to hear about it much more after the break. Anti-war protesters in central Moscow's Pushkin Square are are delivering a sharp rebuke of the Kremlin's aggression, a rebuke that they know comes with serious risks. According to an independent Russian human rights monitoring group, nearly 1,400 anti-war protesters have been arrested so far. Protesters took to the streets after Putin's rambling speech declaring war. The Russian president said the purpose of the military incursion was to, quote, denazify Ukraine. And he continued to float his made up excuse for waging war on Ukraine, claims that Russian citizens are being abused in two breakaway provinces and even subjected to genocide by a democratically elected government he falsely smeared as a regime. Now, let's just be clear. There is currently no ongoing genocide in Ukraine, and Ukraine is not led by Nazis. It is led by a Jewish president, Volodymyr Zelensky, a democratically elected leader, who speaks proudly of his grandfather who fought the Nazis in the Soviet infantry. Putin's speech was just chock full of false allegations, deception and grievances. Revisionist history peppered with nostalgia for the old Soviet regime. And as Russia and analysts have been explaining, including on this show, it is clear that Putin is determined to reverse the progress made by Ukrainian citizens since a popular uprising ousted a Russian-backed president eight years ago. He's aiming to end Ukraine's status as an independent sovereign state and turn it back into a Russian puppet state by, as the Center for Naval Analysis think tank puts it, pursuing regime change. Joining me now is Keir Simmons, NBC News senior international correspondent reporting from Moscow, and Malcolm Nance, MSNBC national security analyst and a former U.S. naval intelligence officer. Keir, I'm going to start with you because that term regime change Uh, That reminds uh, many people, I'm sure, of a very unpopular war waged in this country. Um, And and it was, again, a war of choice. And it doesn't appear that uh, Vladimir Putin can manufacture the consent that I guess he presumed he could in his own country, because there were a lot of protests today. Uh, Give us a sense of sort of. I don't know how you can even really tell kind of how public opinion is in Russia, given that it is an authoritarian state. But to the extent you can, how much support do you think that this invasion has?
7: It's a great question, Joy, just on multiple fronts and just in terms of the support it has. Rush, the Russian people, many of them didn't think this war would happen. And the reason why they didn't think it would happen is because they have many, many of them so close links uh, to Ukraine. We, we talked to one family where uh, the woman's father is in Ukraine, she's here in Moscow. Uh, so I think the Russian people didn't want it to happen, didn't believe it could happen, didn't, didn't think it could happen, uh, and now it's happening and there's a real sense of, of disbelief. And then that rambling speech, you rightly describe it as rambling uh, by President Putin, I think raises some real questions about uh, how he's thinking, uh, how he's seeing this. Because in that very speech, he criticizes the U.S. over Iraq. And yet the same questions that the U.S. learned bitterly with Iraq are going to be the questions that President Putin is going to face over Ukraine. So just let's just think of a few of them. If you break it, you have to fix it. It's harder to fight in a place that is somebody else's turf. Just those, those two questions. And then that one that we all remember What's your exit strategy? And I don't think we are clear what President Putin's exit strategy is on Ukraine. Now, okay, we're only at the beginning, but they're saying that they want regime change. Do they have a puppet government that they can install? Do they have a plan of how they're going to sustain that government? Because quite clearly, Ukrainian people, many of them, are against Russia, against this, and are going to fight against it, just as we've seen in other examples. in the past. So uh, this is a question that's important. The reason why is because I think we can talk about sanctions, but one of the potential ways that people in Russia could turn against President Putin is if this goes very badly wrong for him. Now, I don't say that with any pleasure, because the potential is that if the Russian people really do turn against him, we should just say that there are many Russian people who still support President Putin. But if they do, then you can imagine him being backed into a corner. And and that's the kind of thing that I think really frightens people about this this whole uh, picture. And another point, too, uh, just before I finish, uh, Joy, we've talked about President Putin inside the walls of the Kremlin with a very small uh, team around him. He's the one who makes decisions. We saw him earlier in the week humiliate uh, his foreign intelligence chief uh, at the uh, security council you know when you treat people like that you've known for 40 years who are also in the kgb with you are they giving you the right information are they telling you the truth are they being honest with you again an important question because a lot depends on the decisions that president putin's making and the information he's being given
0: he, it, there's a madness of King George feel about it, Kier, which I'm so glad that you walked wow. us through that, because it does appear that he's hearing what he wants to hear. And, and you can't claim, and I'll bring you in on this, Malcolm, you cannot claim to call the U.S. a hegemon for Iraq and then essentially... Unlearn everything that we learned the hard way in Iraq, as Keir just said. You can't sort of try to place yourself, you know, where do you think you are in this storyline? If you then are occupying a country that doesn't want you there, are going to try to fight an insurgency that's going to happen because you are not wanted. No one, you're not being greeted as liberators. And on top of that, grabbing Chernobyl and already destabilizing something where there's already nukes, it it, it doesn't seem rational. But I want to ask you very quickly, you can comment on that, but I also want you to comment on Ukraine. Because I'm old enough to remember when the former president of this country tried to bribe and blackmail President Zelensky to say, we will withhold military assistance from you if you don't give us dirt Mm. on the man who is now president of the United States. Wrap all of that around for me um, and tell me where you think all of this stands, given Zelensky's challenge and Putin's seeming irrationality. Malcolm.
3: Oh, is that for Kier or for me? That's for you. No, it's for Uh, you. I was I I would have been fascinated to hear Kier's view of that standing (laughs) in Moscow. Uh, Certainly. Well, let's. Let's go back to the fundamentals of Donald Trump's first impeachment. He was impeached because there were 1,000 javelin missiles and defense funds which were going to be released to the government of Ukraine. And Donald Trump extorted President Zelensky, essentially said, I will not give you these funds and resources to defend your nation for this day the day that has arrived, uh, if you do not make up a false story and come out and, and say your prosecutors are investigating Joe Biden. So we have come full circle on this story. Of course, that didn't happen, Donald Trump was impeached, he wasn't convicted, but we've gotten to the point where those Javelin missiles are actually flying today destroying Russian tanks and are critical to the defense of that country. Look, I I may look a little haggard. I just stepped off the airplane from Kiev. uh, But I know that that army is fighting. And they are fighting for their lives. They took back a critical airfield, the Antonov uh, test strip out in Hom- uh, Hodomil, just uh, northeast of the city, uh, which which was critical for the for the Russians to take to carry out their assault on, on Kiev. They did that because they sacrificed their lives. They went out and they fought. The Russians are not going to have a cakewalk. I hear many people say U.S. intelligence is telling us that they're going to be able to take that country in seven days. I've driven every inch of that country except to Luhansk. And I can tell you right now, there is no way they're going to take that country in seven days. I've already had people when I was out west of Lviv ask, hey, how do you, you know, how to explosively formed uh, projectile improvised explosive devices? Right. The copper disc that terrorized the U.S. Army in Iraq and Afghanistan. How are those made? I mean, they are forming an insurgency that is going to be backed up by whatever remains of the army. And Russia, what are they going to do? They can't sit in their tanks at every crossroad. They will be ambushed every day. And in fact, there's actually a statue at the uh, war memorial in, in Patriot Park of the partisans who fought the Nazis for years in Ukraine. So, uh, Vladimir Putin has bitten off way more than he can chew. And as you said, yeah. uh, and, and again, I'd be interested in hearing Kier's view. What is the end game here? A Russian yeah. oblast, a, a neighborhood of Moscow? That will be fascinating.
0: It would be. We're going to have to have you both back so we can hear more from Kier because we are out of time. Unfortunately, I am being told in my ear I have to go to a commercial break. Uh, Kier Simmons, Malcolm Nance. Thank you both very much. Appreciate you uh, coming up. President Biden is working overtime with our allies to show a united front as the right wing media crowd continue to criticize him and praise Putin. We'll be right back. As President Biden vows to make Vladimir Putin a pariah on the international stage for his unprovoked aggression against Ukraine, the loudest voices on the American right are carrying Putin's water. As the assault began last night, Tuckums Carlson was spouting pro-Kremlin talking points while Laura Ingraham ranted insults about Ukraine's president before giving the disgraced, twice impeached former president a platform to fawn over the tyrant Putin. And if you haven't if you have any questions about the real reasons behind the right wing love affair with Putin, look no further than Steve Bannon and noted mercenary Eric Prince.
7: Putin ain't
4: woke. He is anti woke. The Russians people still know which bathroom to use.
3: They know how many how many genders are there in Russia? Two. Okay, that's all of a sudden. That's 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 not that's not. They don't have the flags. They don't have the pride
4: flags outside on their on their. They don't have boys swimming in girls' uh, college swim meets. How backward! It's it's how how, embarrassing. how how savage! How medieval!
3: How how medieval! This is why this whole thing's a scam.
0: Joining me now, Charlie Sykes, editor at large for The Bulwark and Naveed Jamali, former FBI double agent and editor at large for Newsweek. Naveed, I'll start with you. I mean, I, I like it when they just are honest, <laughs> right? And just tell us because <laughs> that way we're not just saying it. Look, Julie Ayafi said this last night on the show that, you know, the reason that the American right or this, this faction of the American right loves Putin and loves Putin's Russia is that in their mind, it's the white ethnostate, the white Christian ethnostate of their dreams. Hard on Muslims, hard on LGBTQ people. You know, no elections, no democracy. Perfect. Right. Um, they're saying it now. I, I like that they're admitting it. Your thoughts.
8: Yeah, no, I agree, except for one thing, Joy, what they believe Russia is is not actually what it is. It's not a Christian ethno state. That's the first thing. Secondly, Chechnya is actually a Muslim state. It's part, you know, it was part of the Soviet Union. So this idea that they fabricated about Russia just doesn't hold true. Yeah, of course, they're incredibly, there's Putin himself is incredibly anti-LGBTQ. But beyond Mm -hmm. that, this idea of this Christian state, it doesn't exist. We know that Russians just don't go to church the same levels as Americans. And yet they've built this caricature that seems to justify what they want the United States to be. They're ascribing that to Russia. And frankly, it's not that. All I can draw the conclusion, Joy, in closing, is that I think the Russians are frankly manipulating them. They're letting them run with Russia's water, putting their talking points on TV. And I hope they're getting something in return, because I know Russia's given up nothing for what they're saying. It's absurd.
0: Well, I mean, Russia has a long history of trying to sell various parts of the American politic, body politic, that they're really their friend, right? They've done this in Africa as well. They've gone and said, no, no, you're on our side. But it, it, let's it in Africa itself, it, it hasn't worked. As much as they've tried to just sort of you know, cultivate relationships there, um, I don't have it now, but the, the the ambassador from Kenya leveled them and said, this is colonialism, what you're doing. Um, so it isn't working everywhere, but it's definitely working on the American right. Let me bring you into this, Charlie. Um, yeah. Tucker Carlson, let me just show this for a second. Not only is what he's doing vulgar in that he's siding with a foreign dictator against the American president, it's also helping Russia. It's being used as propaganda. Yeah. Let's play a little bit of that.
9: What is this really about? Why do I hate Putin so much? Has Putin ever called me a racist? Has he threatened to get me fired for disagreeing with him? Has he shipped every middle-class job in my town to Russia?
0: But it's not just him. It's Tulsi Gabbard, you know, tweeting, uh, you know, even though she's a member of the United States military, which is problematic. And I know Naveed's going to have thoughts on that. Mm -hmm. And it's J.D. Vance who said, I don't give a damn about uh, Ukraine until, oops, I guess he realized that maybe there were some Ukrainian-American voters in the state of Ohio. And suddenly he's like, ah, I'm so, I care so much. Your thoughts? Well, first
9: of all, um, uh, it doesn't matter whether, uh, their view of Russia is, is real or not. Um, it's, it's, it, it, again, it is their posture. Um, and, and I don't think that Russia is inducing them to do it. I think they, they are talking themselves into this, into being useful idiots for the Russians. And that's what. That's what Tucker Carlson is, He used to be described as a useful idiot uh, the use the most valuable useful idiot, of course, is Donald Trump, and this is the important thing to understand. A lot of Republicans are issuing rather you know um, you know solid statements today saying that we need to uh, push back against this aggression, uh, you know be strong and support NATO. But the id of the Republican Party is what you have just played. The entertainment wing of the Republican party um is going a very different direction than the elected officials in the Republican Party. And again, what the important point is is that the the entertainment wing of the Republican Party is dominant and they yeah. have sided with Donald Trump. So I, I think that this is this is actually worth watching. Uh, I don't think that people should be under any illusions that somehow there's going to be a break in the Republican Party, that there's going to be a moment of sanity. Um, look, if uh, If January 6th did not break uh, Donald Trump's hold in the Republican Party, then his fawning slavish praise of Vladimir Putin while he is raping Ukraine is certainly not going to do it as well. But it is interesting the degree to which you have these right wing voices, these heirs of the party of Ronald Reagan giving aid and comfort Mm. to the Kremlin right now. And that, that 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 Tucker Carlson clip you just played, I hope that people notice that was a clip from Russian state TV. He has, he has made a himself a propaganda mouthpiece for the Kremlin. And this is an extraordinary moment to watch this, but also to understand how deep this is. And you made the point, Joe, Joy, that that, you know, in, in part, this fascination is they they like the strongman. They like the authoritarian. They're they're You know, it goes deep. Uh, Donald Trump's uh, long history with Vladimir Putin. So this is not a one off and my guess is the Republican Party will fall into line between, you know, behind the entertainment wing of the party uh, sooner or later.
0: And, and that's the danger here, Naveed. That you know the Republicans are starting off on, on. I mean, even Ted Cruz, you know, basically kind of said the right thing. But it won't yeah. be long before Donald Trump, who by the way has financial inducements to be for Russia, he makes a lot of money selling, you know, overpriced real estate to Russian oligarchs, right? He's he's in bed with them financially. Um, so he has got good reason to be for Russia. Whereas these guys, you know, it's hard to believe they will stand strong and stand with the American in the west, the position of the West, if he starts haranguing in the other direction.
8: I would agree, and there's one thing that these people, including Tulsi Gabbard, you know, love more than this idea of a of a strongman, and that's money. So I would urge you that there's I I don't doubt for a second that if. Tucker Carlson's point of view was not making him a dollar, he would not be saying it. It's as simple as that. But let's talk a little bit about Russia. Look, we've had this moment where, remember Marina Butina? I mean, the ability of the Russians to get into these circles is, it's bar none. And there's this belief, there's this refusal to accept that Russia targets people, that Russia you know, seeks to recruit people, that they are successful in doing that, that they can direct people, that they can get funds to the United States, that those funds can change your perception can actually get you to be a directed agent, not an unwitting or a useful idiot, but actually a directed agent. Look, I'm proof of that. The Russians tried to do that with me for three years. It happens. We've got to get past this idea that Russia, Russian intelligence is not playing in the United States, that Russian intelligence does not see the divisiveness in the United States and is not beneficial to Russia. The more we are divisive, the more there is chaos in this country, the better that is for Russia. For them to spend $20, $100 million, it's nothing for them. If that can be effective, we've got to take this moment that Biden, who unveiled intelligence that showed Russia was going to invade, we've got to look at that in the same prism of what's happening here in the United States. I promise you the Russian intelligence is active here. I promise they're attempting to recruit people and target people. And I promise you in some cases they've been successful. That's a reality. It's like... I don't know why we have such trouble admitting that and and certainly have any trouble actually having the FBI investigate it, honestly. Yeah,
0: it is. It is a wild and strange world that doesn't seem to change a lot. It just keeps going in cycles. Uh, Charlie Sykes, Navid Jamali, both. Thank you both very much. Um, coming up next, America and its allies slapped tough sanctions on Russia. But what more needs to be done to curb Putin's aggression? Stay with us. The impact of international sanctions came into focus last night. Russia's stock market lost nearly 50 percent of its value, making it one of the biggest single-day market collapses in history. Today, the United States, the United Kingdom, the European Union and Canada, working in coordination, continue to pummel Russia with a raft of new sanctions. Roughly 100 or so individuals, including Putin's own former son-in-law, would be blacklisted with their assets frozen. You're probably wondering, why should I care about Russian oligarchs? What does that have to do with me? Here's why. They don't just live and play in Russia. Their tentacles reach far beyond those borders, deep into France, the United Kingdom, Monaco, and the United States. The Russian kleptocracy is built on oligarchs answering only to Vladimir Putin, laundering billions of dollars in wealth stolen from the Russian people into British soccer teams and castles in France, and you guessed it, overpriced condos in Trump properties all over Southern Florida and New York. According to a 2020 report from the Atlantic Council, Russia has the world's largest volume of dark money hidden abroad, about $1 trillion, both in absolute terms and as a percentage of its national GDP. An estimated one quarter of this amount is controlled by Russian President Vladimir Putin and his close associates. Back in 2010, Alexei Navalny, who has been exposing Putin's corrupt kleptocracy for years, was poisoned and imprisoned for it. He warned the world that the only way to hurt Putin and his friends is to finally set limits, confiscate their assets and no longer allow them to travel. Has that time come? Joining me now is Democratic Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee of Texas, who's in Eastern Europe meeting with U.S. allies about the Russian aggression in the region, and uh, Congresswoman, thank you very much. I know that you've been meeting with um with with members of the with allies of ours about this, and I wonder what you're hearing about what it is that Europe would like to see done next after these crippling sanctions.
5: Well, Joy, thank you for having me. Can I first offer my deepest concern to the uh, Ukrainian Americans, uh, as well as the people in Ukraine uh, and the people who, obviously, uh, in Ukraine who are losing their life. Uh, they want. Help! Uh, Literally, they're asking for as forceful a uh, effort by the NATO allies and other freedom-loving nations as can possibly be. You know, frankly, Joy, I'm very concerned about President Zelensky and his cabinet, uh, who are obviously in Kiev and who are obviously, I believe, uh, targets of potential violence. So they want their democracy to be served, and they want to be able to ensure that their friends will not leave them as they're battling against this despot, this terrorist, uh, this person who indicated uh, that he would uh, have a operational war or an operational effort and not kill women and children.
0: Well, Congresswoman, let me ask you, because one of the things that, keep, that kept coming up uh, in President Biden's press conference today was whether or not the SWIFT system will be brought to bear. That's considered the nuclear option. And, you know, as as, as many have pointed out, um, SWIFT is not a bank. It's not a banking system. It's not even controlled by the United States. Um, it is a neutral global cooperative. Uh, any decisions about what happens to it, it rests with the various government bodies, right? It rests with the, uh, the, the central bank in the U.S., I think the, the Royal Bank of Belgium and, and, the, and from the EU as well. So we don't decide what happens with SWIFT. Um, but you do have some members of Congress, including and some members of the United States Senate, who are saying that we should have some legislation to impact uh, Russia's access to SWIFT. Can that be done and will that be done?
5: Well, I think we can do it. And frankly, um, the economy in Russia is none to be proud of. I think that's one of the reasons why Putin has nothing else to do but to show the Russian people he can be a bully. And that's what he's doing. The economy is not strong. The basis of the economy is in is oil uh, energy. Uh, and the young people are not seeing Russia for the future, they're seeing it for the past. Putin is only doing this to restore the old Soviet Union to give his own personal ego and legacy uh, something to stand on. So I think uh, the financial uh, sanctions, defensive financial sanctions, as harsh as they can be, will possibly bring Putin to his knees. And I tell you, uh, the Ukrainian people that I've had a chance to speak to, they are frightened. They are resolved. They're going to fight But they see themselves in a very difficult circumstance uh, because of the uh, even though the uh, military in Russia is not the best, but because of their equipment and the size that they have. So I do believe that we must find a way that will cause Putin to think. And I think also the oligarchs, uh, in essence, closing their bank accounts, uh, putting them out of the country, keeping them uh, from the fancy schools, Uh, that uh, their children are in in the United States, the comfort that they're here. They might be calling up because this is not a communist government. This is a government of billionaires and oligarchs. And so I basically believe that the financial aspect of what we can do can help bring a uh, ceasefire uh, so that we can find uh, a resolution. I still believe in peace. I still believe in diplomacy. Uh, I know that there are many who've given up on this, uh, but I know that the Ukrainian people just want to be free and they need to go back to their business as a sovereign democratic nation. We cannot leave them alone.
0: And, and by the way, just for our audience, Swift is basically that little code that you put in if you want to send money overseas. It's like the, the little code right. that you put in. That That's what Swift is. It is not a bank, just to be clear on that. The president um, today admonished and warned U.S. oil companies not to price gouge because we know that oil prices are probably going to go up. The price of oil is going to go up because of the conflict. Uh, Russia is a major oil supplier. Is there anything that Congress can do? to ensure that we don't have further price gouging, which I have to say has been a big part of what we've been calling inflation. There's been a lot of price pushing by uh, U.S. companies, including oil companies. So how can Congress weigh in to prevent oil companies from taking advantage of this situation to artificially raise prices on American consumers?
5: Well, we can do it together with the executive. First of all, we already know that uh, the price of uh, oil per barrel is now upwards of $100. It probably will go up. American people are going to feel the the basic impact. But I think the president can use his bully pulpit. And yes, um, we can actually write legislation to penalize those uh, who would gouge. Uh, That has happened in times of hurricanes. It was happening in the pandemic, if you realize it. Uh, And we did bring it to a swift close, if I might use that terminology. And I would just say that that would be a dastardly thing to do. And we would stand with the president. I'd hope we move legislation very, very quickly because on top of the present inflation, it would be enormously burdensome to the American people. I do want the American people to know that if this war continues, there will be an impact, even in uh, basic goods and services. But we need to be able to protect them as well.
0: Yeah, indeed. Congresswoman Sheila Jackson-Lee, thank you very much. Really appreciate you being here this evening. And up next, global reaction to Putin's war, how citizens around the world are showing their solidarity with the people of Ukraine. We'll be right back. As the people of Ukraine literally fight for their lives against the Russian invasion, people around the world are standing in solidarity with them. In Berlin, the Brandenburg Gate was lit up in the blue and yellow colors of Ukraine's flag, as hundreds gathered to protest against Russia. Those colors shone bright on the city halls of Paris and Helsinki. The same was true for 10 Downing Street in London, as well as on the Flinders train station in Melbourne, Australia. The Prime Minister of Belgium tweeted out a photo of the gate at the St. in Bridge in, Belgium, in Brussels. And from the Colosseum in Rome to the Petron lookout tower in Prague, the message to the Ukrainian people is clear. You are not alone.